You're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. Hello, I'm Jenny Rudolph, and this is COVID Chronicles. Today, I'm delighted to be here with emergency medicine physician, Marjorie Lee White, and nurse Andres Vilas. Andres, do you have a specialty within nursing? My background is in emergency nursing for over 14 years and 20 years total. Welcome to both of you. I want to just remind our listeners, over the last month or so, we've been kind of around the world at COVID Chronicles. We've been in Hong Kong thinking about how do you prepare airway teams within the OR to deal with aerosolizing agents. We've been in Australia talking about doffing grief after difficult end-of-life conversations. We've been in Spain talking about how do we bring empathy to colleagues who are kind of on the front lines and feeling quite overwhelmed. And today, I'm delighted to be with colleagues in Birmingham, Alabama. Marjorie Lee White is the Vice President for Clinical Simulation at the University of Alabama Health System, which is so fantastic that they even have a Vice President of Simulation. And she's also the Director of the Office of Interprofessional Simulation. And I've known Marjorie Lee for years, and she's gone from being an assistant professor, and now she's a professor of pediatric emergency medicine also at UAB. So... Great to have you, Marjorie Lee. Thanks so much, Jenny. It's really an honor to be part of this conversation. I think this is really the time where we have the biggest professional challenges. And I'm truly, truly grateful to be a simulationist at this time and to be able to have the opportunity to contribute um, and really change how we make sure that those at the front lines are prepared to take care of patients. I'm Excited to hear more about what it is you're doing, Marjorie Lee. Thanks. And Andres Vilas is a simulation coordinator, senior, and the director of immersive simulation in the Office of Interprofessional Simulation uh, at UAB. And uh, the work that Andres and Marjorie Lee and colleagues have done in that interprofessional office uh, really reaches throughout the health system, which is exciting. And Andres is with us today for a number of reasons, but uh, not the least of which uh, is that he's the coordinator of UAB Serious Infectious Disease Team, uh, which is particularly relevant at this time. So, Andres, welcome. Jenny, thank you so much. And again, I echo what Marjorie Lee said. That it's an honor, and uh, I'm just excited to, to share all the great things that we're doing. Thanks. Well, I'm so delighted to have you here. So I'd like to start, Marjorie Lee and Andres, with a little bit of background and sort of have a runway up to what you're doing right now, because based on my understanding, a lot of your ability to be helpful right now is from the homework that you've done over many, many years, building relationships throughout your system. Um, Marjorie Lee, I'm thinking that your program, the Boston Children's Hospital program, the Gold Coast University program, there's really probably fewer than 10 in the world who are as penetrated as deeply into all aspects of the health system and all agendas, including, for example, I noticed you're working on opioid issues, health disparities, as well as these critical care issues that we'll talk about today. So tell me a little bit about your journey into that level of 
penetration. Actually, ironically, our journey into true integration within our health system started really, I think, with Ebola. And so my very oh. first day as uh, in this current position, which was in October of 2014, my boss said, you're in charge of Ebola training. And at that time, oh we God. did not know what simulation should be doing. And so we've then spent the last six years trying to figure out uh, with partners from throughout the health system, from, from our environmental services folks, to our supply chain, to our administrative, to our leaders, to our clinicians, how to be part of everything that they do. And we really think about it from an individual level, from a team level, and from a systems level. And we think about it from pre-construction to post-construction to how do we make sure everyone's staying up to date. We've also thought about it, what all needs to be in our simulation toolkit? You know, so we need to have tabletops. We need to have process simulations. We've come up with new terms. In fact, even today, we are trying to come up with what are the new terms? What is it that should be remote? What is it that should be virtual? What is it that should be doing this? And, and what needs to be in our toolkit as debriefers, as reflective practitioners? What is it that needs to be in what we're doing? We've been really fortunate that that Ebola experience allowed us to be at the table and to be, you know, leaders in that field. And so I think it has really prepared us to be prepared now to be part of the COVID-19 pandemic simulation. People think of simulation and they say, you know, we need to simulate first. And then we partner with everybody to try to figure out how to do that. That position that you're in where people are coming to you to ask for help, Andreas, people are coming to you to ask for help with COVID, is I think a position that many simulationists and healthcare education people would like to be in, uh, because I think many of us often feel that we're trying to convince our colleagues of the value of something that we're doing. And Marjorie Lee, you used the phrase, we're at the table. And I wonder if you could share a story with us about how that came to be, whether it was through the Ebola crisis with people reaching out to you, or perhaps another example of how you came to be seen as a go-to person rather than you having to sort of sell this idea to others. There are a couple of opportunities that stand out when I think about how we've been able to show the value of healthcare simulation. So one relatively recent story is in the opening of a freestanding emergency department. And we did a day in the life simulation and we had a nursing leader come and we put into practice the staffing plan that they had, had worked out. And she came and she watched it and she said to me, I'm going back to our office to redo our staffing plan. It took about, you know, five minutes for her to see that the plan at, that they had written down on paper uh, and the plan that, that looked beautiful was actually not going to work in the space that they had built. And, and what we've had people say over and over is when you simulate it, and we know we can do that safely, 
we learn so much. The, the complexity of, of seeing it happen really, really gives us that, both that gut feeling, um, it hits us in the gut, and it also allows us to not practice on our patients. We're able to um, see it happen. Taking this experience of people getting to witness the impact of their conceptual plans in the harsh or real reality of patient care kind of awakens them to the importance of actually doing these run-throughs. I think in this current moment of COVID, people are personally a lot more interested in making sure everything works well than they might be in normal practice, though that story that you just shared, Marjorie Lee, is, is so powerful. And so, Andres, I'd love to kind of turn the conversation to your experience with helping your colleagues get ready with rehearsal and readiness for PPE, personal protective equipment. Talk to me a little bit about how that's been going for you and, and, and what are your thoughts about it? Like Marjorie Lee, I believe that this all began with Ebola and working with our hospital partners. That's We really focused on PPE and the, the putting on and taking off safely of PPE and how do we do that as a team? How do we help each other? So teamwork uh, and how we communicate and interact with each other was really important. So that we've continued that. Uh, so our, our team has continued and evolved, and we're we're now part of a larger serious infectious disease network that's challenged us to continue um, kind of pushing the envelope on what we do. And for me, I think I also have a very personal interest in in making sure that we do this safely. And my my wife is a frontline provider in our pulmonary critical care unit. So I'm, and I think like most simulationists, we we try and, and reflect and see how how important it is that we're really what we're really doing. Does it how does it impact those that that are that are caring for patients? And I can say that it's uh, I know that what I am doing is extremely important in protecting my wife uh, and the other people that she works with. So, kind of zooming from that very personal uh, application. Andres, which I think, you know, each one of our providers in my system and your system, I think, wants to take great care of themselves and, and wants to help each other. And obviously, your educational design process has a big impact on how safe people can stay. And um, I'm going to make a little bit of a, uh, an analogy and then ask you to think about this. So probably in your system, like mine, you have to watch, you know, 20 different health stream videos every year and certify that you remember how to race to take care of fire or whatever. And, and there's a bunch of PPE stuff in there also for droplet protections and so on. But now all of a sudden everybody's paying a lot more attention. But as I've said um, on this podcast in some other conversations, as a former rock climber, I know that I'm highly vigilant when I'm on the climb itself, but when I get to the end of the climb, I tend to not pay as careful attention, and that's actually when a lot of accidents do happen. So I'm imagining that doffing, when you're taking off your PPE, you're done with that difficult conversation or you're done with that difficult procedure. Maintaining vigilance can be tricky, and 
How do you think about that in terms of an educational design work? I know you all have done some remote training, some in-person training. Love to hear about how you're thinking about supporting your colleagues in that moment. We've actually done a lot of thinking about the importance of doffing and trying to get past uh, vigilance and trying to figure out how to hardwire some of this, uh, some of the process in. We actually have spent a good deal of time thinking about the doffing expert and the role of the observer and trying to make sure that that um, piece of the puzzle, and, and really that comes from our simulation background, right? So how to be observers thinking about what we're going to talk about in the debriefing, but also you know, helping to translate that uh, for the doffing expert, the observer who is there with the checklist uh, and helping to remind the very tired caregiver of the steps. So early on, we had conversations with our critical care teams about how would they have a remote doffing expert who could have a view into the room for the steps of the doffing of the PPE that need to happen in the room, and then how could we have them available for when people step outside the room, and really thinking through the process. And, and really that comes from our simulation world, the expertise and the thought process behind thinking through that. So the first thing is really thinking about the role of the doffing expert and being intentional about training people to do that. The second thing that we've, we've tried to do in our training of people is help them to do some mental rehearsals. So you mentioned that early on we did a train the trainer model live, giving people a minimal amount of PPE to use. Uh, but then we had to to shift to doing uh, actual sort of low budget virtual simulation. So we asked people to go through the motions with us to literally do that. So would it be Marjorie Lee like this, like uh, one of one of you is on Zoom or something like that, and 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 watching your colleagues yes. try to do so, it? Yes. So again, we could we could use head, nose, knees, and toes, you know, in terms of the process. Uh, so so trying to use what we know about cognitive and psychomotor knowledge acquisition that that we may not be able to be perfect, but we're certainly going to try. Love to come back to a piece of that. And Andres, what are you, what are you thinking about? Well, I was, I was just this, thinking so. that as adult learners, I, I feel it's, it's important to be able to, like you said, have an opportunity to actually do the things that you're, you're, you're being asked to do with the equipment that you're being asked to, to, to use. That was, I think, the initial challenge. Uh, and that's one of the things that we learned from Ebola, too, that, the recommendations were that training and preparedness had to be kind of multimodal. It couldn't be simply the, the health stream module. You had to have in-person or didactic. You had to also have uh, opportunities, like I said, for them to physically do the things that you want to do to get that uh, those micro skills uh, and that muscle memory of how you do it. As we started moving into the limitations of social distancing, how many people could be in a group, uh, and then the limitations on actual having PPE for people to use or to return demonstrate. That's where, for me as a as an educator and simulationist, it was it was hard for me to just have them go through the motions because I'm although I know there's benefit in that 
it's not the same as actually physically putting it on and taking off the PPE. Just getting into a couple details here that are important, I think, both from the rehearsal and readiness point of view, but also from the once it goes live point of view. The doffing expert, I think, may face a couple challenges, I'm imagining, and I'd like to get your take on this. One, talking to someone from the other room, how is that happening? That's interesting logistics. Maybe we could take that second. But first, telling someone they've made a mistake, even if it's in their own interest, is often awkward for people. In one of our hospitals here in Boston, we have a monitor for central line placements, and that is often a nurse monitoring a resident or a physician and putting in a central line. And as much as we want to maintain perfect sterility and do the steps correctly, that's still a socially awkward moment to say, uh, 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 you missed that or you touched that. Or... So I'm wondering how you see that. How have you dealt with that socially awkward part? Or has it not been an issue? How has that come about? So I absolutely agree that the role of the doffing expert has both a, an intellectual as well as a social or communication challenge. So I've been serving actually as a doffing expert at our testing site for some of our swabbers. And uh, these are our certified medical assistants, and they are wonderful clinicians and, and have been really important on our front lines with testing. And so I've used a couple of strategies. One, I really pre-brief at the beginning, uh, before the beginning of the doffing. And I remind them, uh, you know, I know you're tired. I know you're hot. You're drenched. Remember, this is, this is our opportunity. And I ask, we use closed loop communication. So we talk about, okay, first step is this, repeat back what your step's going to be. We really try to use the, the strategies that we have available to us. And I'm also working on my own vigilance, right? So I see them heading heading for the front instead of the back. You know, or I see them heading in a direction and try to hold them there. And at the same time, it's still hard for me to say, no, stop, pause, using all of those, all of that language that, that we've, that we use in our simulations. So I hear myself about to say the word no, and I say pause, you know, I, I, I try mm -hmm. to use all of those things and, and, and there's not a power differential that, you know, I can speak up without a problem, but I've also been working on uh, training them to be the doffing experts, and I hear them using the same phrases that I've used and, and using the best communication in terms of that. So I think we, again, the answer goes across all of, all of our platforms. So establishing trust, um, using the structure uh, that we know and that we've agreed on, using the best practices for communication, as Andres has already mentioned, you know, teamwork and communication here really goes across all, all of our platforms. So this is great. I just wanted to comment that this idea of a pre-agreement or a briefing where I'm here to help keep you safe, I may pause you from time to time, you know, that might feel awkward, but I know, I suspect you want to stay safe and I want to help you stay safe. All the kinds of things that we do to help people understand that it's not a gotcha moment, but it's a helping moment could be really, really important here because people are already stressed about their safety. And so in a way, you're creating a bit of a safe container for them to do this difficult and unsafe thing. Uh, and that seems so 
humane and kind. Uh, Andres, what's your take on this? No, I would agree. I think pre-briefing, and this is where when COVID first started, I was trying to think of, reflect and think, how can I really help impact these people? And And I thought about as a simulationist, what are the things that I, the tools that I have to help these teams do these things safely? So I think all the training we've had on how to facilitate conversations, how to pre-brief structure of uh, and process how important it is have really set us up to be able to help them and model the behavior that we would like them to exhibit so the the pre-briefing and the verbiage we use reminding each other of the to hold the basic assumption that uh, I'm here when when I pause you and provide you feedback it's because I care about you and your safety and instead of that oh he's he's being critical that he he really cares about he's me judging me he's, yeah. he really cares about me and he wants me to do this safely. So this spurs me to think a little bit about the importance of the work you're doing across the UAB system, especially during COVID, but potentially other times. But let's focus on now. That in a way is helping people downregulate their stress and their negative emotion that may be helping them, your work may help kind of create this safe container where they have a way of doing something that's difficult and scary and stressful, uh, whether, for example, PPE. But I'm imagining that the rehearsal that you're helping them with, the fact that you're helping them be ready, itself expresses some caring by you professionals helping the other professionals. I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts about this part of the process, the psychological impact or the psychological benefit of this kind of training and any any of the trainings that you're doing in helping people manage the stress they're going through right now. Some of the things that we've done, we've, shot, we've filmed several videos for donning and doffing the different levels of PPE. Uh, for our institution, and we've uh, set that out pretty early for people. And I've had several people comment that just having that video kind of as pre-learning and being able to view that before they actually went on the the unit to care for these patients decreased their anxiety because, you know, w- without having that, they're they're kind of mentally coming up with these scenarios of what it's like without really having a lot of context. Um, you know, as healthcare workers, we put on PPE on a daily basis, but very rarely to this level um, and almost never with actual feedback on whether we're doing it correctly or not. Uh, so to actually have a visual representation of what it should look like before you go in there, uh, uh, I've had several comment that that was helpful and decreased their anxiety before they went in. So I would say also that one of the things that we've been able to do is help with the fear with changes in PPE. So our institution, as I know is true for many institutions, has been looking at alternatives. At So we don't have any more of the yellow gowns, which is what is supposed to, which is what has been recommended. So what are we going to use? 
And then how do we think about what are the unintended consequences of using something else? And so with partners, with partners um, in education, in infection prevention, in supply chain, we've been able to do simulations and then provide educational videos and, and, and training to help understand what are the steps that you need to take to use this alternative personal protective equipment piece. And so that, I think, you know, so you think, oh, that's easy, right? You just, you just try this new thing on, you figure out what the steps are. No, actually what that does is really lower, you know, the anxiety for frontline folks who can say, well, somebody has thought through this. Somebody has gone through the process. We've thought about what does it take? Okay, so we're going to have to have a person who's going to walk around with a pair of scissors and cut you out of this. So we've got to we've got to think through all of that. And so to me, that shows a real respect for our frontline providers who are being asked to do something different. Their cognitive load is so high that if we can take just a little piece of that off um, and make that easy and, and know what what the process is, that's really important. There's been you know, tons of innovation within the personal protective equipment world, and that's really exciting. Uh, but it also has provided an opportunity for us to, you know, bring people in and have them test it out and go through the process, you know, with a, with a mannequin or, or with a piece of, of that and think about, think through really the unintended consequences. And that's a process of, that really leads itself to safety. What I think is really important about this, and I think health system leaders who aren't familiar with rehearsal, simulation, or practice may not always appreciate, is the role of having people feel that the safety systems behind them are rock solid. Again, I think about this as a rock climber. If I know my anchor, that's the pieces of metal and so on that are dug into the rock above me are really solid. I'm able to do my climbing. I'm not going to worry about that popping out and I'm going to fall. And you essentially, your team is essentially doing the same thing, which is you're reassuring your colleagues that yes, we thought through about these safety issues. Yes, you can rely on them. Yes, we've tested them. Um, and I think that's invaluable, not only to mental cognitive load, but the autonomic nervous system arousal that happens if you don't feel safe doing your practice. So it's a real gift I, I think you're giving your colleagues. Uh, Andres, what are your thoughts on this? I agree, and I just wanted to kind of double click on a little bit of what Marjorie was saying. Having the frontline providers involved in all these uh, decisions, I think is what is important and has set us apart. We always say it's it's important to have a frontline provider uh, there, but we actually do it. And I know that's that can be challenging sometimes. So having them at the table and being able to go back to their colleagues and relay, hey, I was there. We really went through this and and um, uh, I feel good about this product or, or this process because I was there and I helped develop it. So they have some uh, skin in the game. They And they take that back to their, their colleagues. And, let them know, hey, we, we, they're listening to us. That's, that's precious. I mean, in a, in a true sense, in that, that A, your process in it informed by the people who are actually going to use it, but B, it really allows their colleagues who they work with every day to have confidence. Marjorie, so I would say ahead. that really the, 
success of our program has is built on the fact that we bring frontline people who are actually doing either the skill or part of the team or who are going to be working in the space that we're simulating for to the table really early on. And so we're continuing to do that for COVID-19 and we'll do that in the future. And so we have the the reputation, we have the buy-in of our leadership because we're able to bring people to to a place, to a safe space, to an environment that we deploy our simulation skills and and techniques in and that we're able to then translate that and give that back to all of the various stakeholders who need information who are helping us move forward. So as I think about moving us past the initial COVID-19 era, I think that we're going to use again the lessons learned now um, to continue to do that better. What we were doing before will not be what we're doing in the future, but we're going to certainly deploy uh, simulation for individuals, teams, and for systems. We'll be adding additional virtual, remote, other things into our toolkits, but we'll continue to deploy frontline providers to give us really important feedback and to help them be able to do that. So I think that's where that's where we're headed is to a new uh, a new model. I'd love to turn our conversation in that direction now, thinking about what's next uh, for UAB Health System rehearsal readiness for a variety of things. And before we go there, I guess what I want to highlight is that you, Marjorie Lee White, and you, Andres Vilas, at University of Alabama, Birmingham, are using a lot of the principles essentially from design thinking, uh, from voice of the customer. What are the people who actually have to do the skills that you're trying to learn up against? What are their jobs to be done? What are their pains? What are their gains? And I think this is really the cutting edge or best practice that many of us in simulation and health and healthcare education broadly really need to be thinking about. So it's inspiring to hear about what you're doing. Thinking about turning the ship of your big program and, and the health system, what are the kinds of things that you are focused on next? You know, in a three or four months, all the things that were there before, uh, the opioid crisis, other drug challenges, health disparities, COPD, diabetes, whatever. It's all there still waiting for us uh, when we come out of this. Marjorie Lee, you and I in the past have also talked about the work that you've done on reducing infection rates across the system by doing wound care, which is certainly not a sexy thing, but can have a huge impact on the wellness of a huge number of patients. So wondering what's on your mind? What do you think are going to be some key things to focus on and, and, and how are you going to be thinking about them? I guess I would put our plans for the future in, in really two buckets. Uh, so one, I would say that we are going to need to resume our, our focus on the important societal issues. So we're going to be looking again at doing our opioid simulation and doing that broadly. We're already making plans to be able to do that virtually uh, and to have an impact that is a low touch, um, socially distanced, but still high impact 
uh, and we're we're struggling with how do we have the the meaningful debriefings that we we know we want to have in terms of that. We're also looking at how do we take some of the things that were impactful before out within within our networks. We're going to make a difference in the health of the population of the state of Alabama. We're going to need to make sure that they have our COVID-19 lessons, because I I expect that COVID-19 is going to be a, a part of all of our futures for the foreseeable future. And so we're going to want to make sure that we're getting the best information throughout throughout this state and this region. And then the second thing is, so we're picking back up on some of the things that we were doing. I also think we're going to need to do what we've done before differently. We're going to think about how we do our process sims and our space simulations in the most impactful way. Our process sims are where we work with folks within our system who have either a new process that they want to develop or are looking at revamping or changing or doing something different. So an example currently that we're working on is looking at the development of a venous thromboembolism prevention um, within our electronic health record. And so we were able to do a virtual tabletop simulation within the electronic health record this week to do a test of that process before it will roll out in the operating room. That rollout is is going to happen because we need to protect our patients. And so looking at that, getting information about the process before it before it gets rolled out can be incredibly valuable. Our space simulations uh, are where we're involved in various phases of construction. Sometimes it can be at pre-construction of either um, a redo of of a new space, or it can be a project that's happening that will open in December for the move of a clinic and the consolidation of a couple different clinics. And so we're going to be working with those teams to really have the patient experience be the focus of how we do that. And so I know that a few things will happen differently with our space simulations. People will likely be wearing masks and we'll be thinking about how to do that safely for, for our for our population, but again, bringing the people who have the perspectives, the various perspectives of either different professions or different sectors or different parts of our, our population will continue to be really important for us. Marjorie Lee and, and Andres, as we kind of move toward the end of our conversation here, I'd love to give you uh, each kind of the second to last word. Andres, I'll start with you, and then Marjorie Lee, I'll come to you. I just you know, this is a really profound time of change for so many of us. Pretty much everybody on the planet has had their lives changed. There's a lot of people who were already under duress. It's certainly gotten me thinking about, you know, what's uh, not to be too uh, highfalutin, but, you know, what's meaningful in my life? What do I focus on the most? What's giving me a sense of direction? And I just wonder, you know, what that's like for you, Andres. What's, what's on your mind right now? I really struggled when I when I left the bedside because I really enjoyed what I what I did, and and I I felt like I was really good at what I did. And now as a, as a simulationist, I still kind of reflect back on how am I still providing care to these patients and and, and my colleagues at the bedside, and and I I've, I've learned to trust that 
the tools I have as a simulationist are extremely important and position me well to help them. So what are the things that we do? We, we are great facilitators of conversation uh, and are able to pull different people, different professions, uh, disciplines uh, to the table and help them figure out the processes to improve the care that we give our patients and to do it safely uh, without having to, um, you know, our motto is see one, sim some, harm none. And I, I truly believe that and I, I love it. So we're able to do all those things. So as a simulationist, trust that what you do makes a, uh, a difference and we are, we are experts in what we do and we have a valuable role in, in healthcare. Lovely. Marjorie Lee, what's, what's on your mind these days? What's been on my mind is really in, in sort of two camps. So as a pediatric emergency medicine provider, I am drawing on every bit of my simulation knowledge to be present and to to be the leader in the emergency room where we have teams who are really stressed. We may be seeing fewer kids, but the kids we're seeing are sick. They, you know, can't have their families around them. They can't have the usual things that are there. And so it has been so heartening to me to see people with the checklists we've created and watching the videos before they put on their personal protective equipment to see the resources that our team, our SIM team has created that are there on the front lines helping people. And they're not just putting it on because they know I've done it. They're putting it on because it they know that their lives are improved by that. So I have that piece like as a personal, as a personal, as a clinician, and then to have that reinforcement happening. And then the second thing, the second place where I've been using my simulation knowledge, and this is where um, it's both the simulation knowledge for individuals. So helping people um, know how to don and doff helping the team to use all of the strategies that we talk about. So, hey guys, I'm here in closed loop communication. Let's huddle up. Let's let's do this. And to create the a safe environment is really as UAB Medicine has been deploying testing to various communities. And so I um, have been part of a team that's been fortunate to to do this, and everyone uses okay. We've got to we've got to simulate this first. We've got to go out. We've got to do a dry run. Um, and so it's just. To hear that word used in non-traditional ways, and, and it's not just because I'm there, it's because people have made that be part of, of what they do. And it may be a really quick simulation, or it may not use all of the, you know, the, the things that we do, but at least they're thinking, let's stop, let's pause, let's simulate first, uh, because that will make us safe. And um, that's just really heartening for me that we simulate first. Well, thank you, Andres Vilas and Marjorie Lee White. It's been a delight to have you both here from the University of Alabama, Birmingham Simulation and Interprofessional Engagement Program. It's particularly gratifying for me because, you know, we all have worked together in different ways for 15 years, Marjorie Lee. Uh, and to see the amazing work that you're each doing and applying, you know, fundamental education skills that were sort of developed out of a, you know, kind of different 
sort of generalized context and how brilliantly you're bringing them all together to make such a big impact for your colleagues and keeping them safe and your patients. So uh, it's, that's such a delight for me. And thank you both for taking the time out of, I know, very busy schedules to do this conversation. We're honored. Thank you for having us. It is an honor. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedsim.org.